0: Hey this is Robbie Shaw, this is Patrick Balsley,
1: and I'm Sam Hampson.
0: And this is Champagne Problems where we come together to explore the gray areas of drinking. This is a judgment-free zone where we can all take a look at how we make decisions about our relationship with alcohol.
1: back listeners to champagne problems i'm back in the studio with patrick and robbie today and we just had a phenomenal conversation with ruby warrington guys throw out some highlights for us to pay attention to
0: well her cat's beautiful i do know that (laughs) yeah that was incredible that that, you know we the whole reason we we sought her out was because of her, you know, her resume of of creating the phrase Sober Curious and then implementing it in her journey and now writing books of the same title. And she's got podcasts and she creates events in New York and she's got website. I mean, she's just all over the place in this world. So she has been at the top of our list of trying to get her on here. Um, and now we have and it did not disappoint. I thought she... She really lended all of her mission and and her her personal goals, as well as you know ways that she wants to just change the the narrative, and and she shed a lot of light on on all that, which is just speaking our language as far as our podcast goes. It was just it was fantastic.
2: Yeah, I mean, knowing who she is and and what she's been doing and her her kind of public persona, um, I knew that our missions were in alignment. This conversation with her really um, exceeded any type of expectations I had, and it was fantastic.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. For our listeners, if you, if you have ever contemplated taking notes from this podcast, today's episode would be the one to do it with. I know I have notes of just all new language to use with the same concepts I've been mulling over for 10 years, so super intriguing, super eloquent, and just a really great place to start. Lots of takeaways, and hope you guys enjoy.
0: Here's our conversation with Ruby Warrington.
1: Welcome to
0: Champagne Problems.
3: Hi, thank you so much for having me.
0: Absolutely. We are delighted to have you on. We have known of you and and your name and and the things that you've been doing for for quite a while now. So you've always been on our list of, of hopeful guests. At the top. At the top, you know, so here we are. If okay with you, we will just dive in.
3: Yeah, let's go for it. I'm excited. All
0: right, let's do it. And so, as many times as I imagine you've had to explain this, would you mind kind of starting from the top on your backstory of what led you into a a sober curious journey?
3: Yeah, sure. So it's kind of it's ten years now that I've been sober curious. So it was around, yeah, 2011. I started just questioning my drinking. And it was very internal, very private. I'm sure many people have been there. In fact, I know many people are there. (laughs) And the questions were things like, am I drinking too much? Why do I sometimes feel so much pressure to drink? Is drinking really worth it for the hangovers? Um, What is too much drinking? What's a drinking problem? These sorts of questions, right? Which... Many people who would consider themselves to be normal social drinkers will have asked themselves these questions at some point. You know, this is the classic, waking up really hungover, I'm never drinking again, (laughs) give it two days, maybe just a glass of wine. You know that? Oh
0: yeah.
3: (laughs) And this is many, many, many more people than won't ever find their way to a recovery program, to rehab, or even to the kind of a rock bottom that might be the wake up call that they need to, to address their drinking. But 10 years ago, no one was really talking about that, at least not obviously. And I felt very um, shy, nervous, embarrassed to kind of ask any of these questions out loud. Um, If I did open up to a friend or a colleague, they would sort of, you know, maybe you need to go to AA. And I thought, hmm. And after a few years, I did go to a couple of AA meetings, but I didn't necessarily see my experience reflected there. The stories I was hearing, Um, The situations that people had got into, the relationships that people had with drink and other substances were not reflective of my drinking at all. I would have considered myself a normal social drinker. You know, never more than four nights a week, uh, never on a Monday, never during the day, unless it was Christmas or a holiday or whatever. Um, what, what, can, what looked from the outside like normal drinking, and you know, when I did sort of talk to friends about like I think I'm going to cut back, or I'm mm-hmm. thinking about maybe even like quitting for a few months, the typical response would be, "But, but you don't have a problem," because <laughs> I never. If, if anything, people would be like, "But you never even looked drunk. I never blacked out. Like I wasn't that person, right?" And so it's very hard for me to square this internal kind of dissonance I had with the, what the outside world was projecting onto my drinking. It was about five years into this process that I had really been um, just finding huge benefits from taking longer and longer breaks from alcohol, whether it was a dry January, I did my first dry January, I think in like 2014, to then maybe a couple of months, six weeks off, maybe a couple of months off. And every time I took a longer break from drinking, I realized how much better I felt without alcohol. And yet, <laughs> The narrative, the overarching narrative in the popular mainstream culture was, drinking is a necessary part of living a successful, happy, relaxed, vibrant social life, right? (laughs) And so it just took so, so long of listening to and trusting my own experience to be able to confidently take a step back and say, no, I'm not gonna be engaging with this anymore. Because like I said, I never hit that rock bottom which meant I Mm -hmm. had to stop, which meant it made it obvious that my drinking Mm -hmm. was a problem. When I think back now to people saying, but you don't have a drinking problem, my response now would be, well, can you define problem, please? (laughs) Because problem drinking is, I mean, the spectrum of kind of experience behind those two words is vast, right? You know, a problem drinking could be hangovers that mean you're not really present for your kids in the morning. That could be a drinking problem right? It doesn't have to be any worse than that for you to address your drinking. And so it got to a point where I really started to feel like oh, I, I can't be the only one who's experiencing this. Um, and at the time I was running a kind of a quite a popular wellness platform here in New York and had been doing hosting retreats and events and all sorts of things and um, approached a meditation teacher named beat Simkin who I knew had 12-step recovery about whether she'd be interested in hosting a, a what I was going to call a sober curious event because that's the okay. term I had come up with for this questioning process I had been in right it had been a question of getting actually getting curious like why do I always pick up a drink in these situations why is it so hard for me not to drink when these people are around what is too much for me is that one 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 beer maybe that's too much for me oh that's interesting information <laughs> so uh-huh. it was a Sober Curious was designed um, very specifically to be super open-ended and non-judgmental and very much of an invitation to just look at it rather than just continuing to drink blindly just because it's what we do, which is the way the majority of us drink, I think. So yeah, that's the kind of the story behind it. And then I started hosting events in New York. We had like 100 people came to the first one. Within a couple of years, we were having 300 people show up. And I was like, okay, yeah, it was not just me. Wow. You know? And then, yeah. yeah. And then that led to books and podcasts and all sorts.
2: What was the, can, can you pinpoint the inspiration behind your decision to actually try like that sober January, to actually stop drinking? What was the, what was the kicker that went from this internal dialogue to actually taking action? Was there anything specific that inspired you to take action on it?
3: There was. There was, and I I write about this. I wrote about this in the in the first book. I had a job as a, a feature editor, so like a magazine journalist in the UK, in the UK, before I moved here in 2012. Here being the US, oh, <laughs> and holy, I, I got sent on a yoga retreat as an assignment, like a weekend-long yoga retreat in Ibiza, uh, of all places, which many people know is like the party <laughs> capital of Europe. And typically, like my visits to Ibiza had been the most kind of like alcohol-saturated. <laughs> Hedonistic experiences. So I was going to a Ibiza to a yoga retreat, and I knew there wouldn't be any. Well, I didn't. I didn't actually know that they wouldn't be serving alcohol, but there wasn't any alcohol being served. I arrived there on like you know Friday morning, was there through Sunday night. Um, we went out for dinner on the last night as a group, and I kind of assumed that like everyone would order a glass of wine with dinner because it was the end of the retreat. Nobody ordered any wine, <laughs> and I was so uncomfortable, and it really shocked me how hard it was for me to sit at this table and have dinner with these people not without a glass of wine it might sound like a minor thing but it just was a real eye-opening moment then going into work on the Monday feeling so alive so excited about the week to come so free of anxiety whereas my typical Monday walk into work would have just been like dread about what the week had to, you know, I, I really loved my job, but it was a very high-pressure job, like daily deadlines and it's a weekly magazine, so lots of high turnover <laughs> of content and stuff. I was like, wow, what what's different? Oh, huh. this. I think this is the first weekend since college when I'm I haven't alive. drunk any alcohol. This is extremely interesting, and that. So for me, it wasn't a rock bottom. It was more like a, wow. Here's how good That's I could awesome. feel if I wow. didn't drink. So that was a really powerful incentivizer to investigate more fully what my life would look like without alcohol. I think I'm a
1: slower learner, Ruby, because I had very similar experiences, but I had to have quite a lot of them. Oh, that, I had to have yeah, me kind too. Of stumbling <laughs> into like a lot of Mondays or Wednesdays or Thursdays, going, "What's different? What's different? Why do I feel better? Why do I? Why is this more clear? Why am I more present?" and It took me a long time to pinpoint that that was the difference, that that was the absence and that that could just have that big of an impact. It didn't make sense to me. Like I I kept trying to think of like, what have I put in my body that's making me feel better? Because that's the way, right? As we do things that make us feel better and use things that make us feel better. And it, it took me a while to realize I can, I can leave this thing out and feel better as a result. And that was with even having questioned my relationship with alcohol quite a lot, very similarly to your story, just a ton of internal dialogue that did not at all match what people were saying around me. And did not really elicit a great response when I would say it out loud. (laughs) In fact, it made me feel more weird about it, but I knew that I was kind of constantly one eye on my drinking and, why do I do this when it doesn't make a ton of sense? And I actually don't really enjoy the way that other people seem to and I actually do really feel bad after I do it. And so even with those two separate kind of experiences, it really took me a while, probably about two years of fumbling through weekends, social events, that sort of thing to reconcile that things were totally open and possible without alcohol In fact, could feel way better. And also that it just was if it doesn't work for me, then it is a problem. And so it doesn't need to be problematic drinking, it's just causing me problems, even if that problem is being groggy or having a headache in the morning. That's a
3: problem for me, because I can't go to yoga. <laughs> right. Exactly. And I mean, like I said, that was 2011, or maybe even the very, I think it was the end of 2010. Actually, I didn't like quit quit
1: mm-hmm.
3: until like about three years ago. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like from that morning onwards, a switch right. flicked. And I was like, oh, I don't need this anymore. Life's so mm-hmm. much better without it. Oh, no. <laughs> We're talking about like a lifetime's conditioning no. around alcohol, like, you know, all of those neural pathways. Alcohol is how you relax. Alcohol is how you socialize. Alcohol is what makes you popular. Alcohol is why people like you. Alcohol makes you fit in. I mm-hmm. had to kind of slowly and painstakingly, over the years that followed that, really work hard to write new stories for myself about alcohol. And that's not a one and done. That's like, you have to be out there doing it, practicing it, and really consciously aware of, of what's going on. Um, So yeah, definitely is. It's. I don't think it's ever an overnight process for anybody. Yeah.
2: I want to know more about what that looks like for you. Like, how did you rewrite those stories? Well, a lot of it. I mean, I, mean, I know you did it publicly. But yeah.
3: Like, <laughs> I mean, it was which, it made, w- which,
2: made, which makes it easier. But yeah. Like, it, tell us more.
3: Starting hosting the events um, and kind of publicly speaking on this stuff and inviting other people into the conversation definitely gave me a ton of, I guess you could say, accountability around like, okay, I'm really staking a claim for this. Like, I really want to like hold myself to this. But prior to that, and I write in both sober curious books and speak a lot on the importance of what I call sober firsts which is like yeah. doing all the things <laughs> that I would usually use alcohol for without a drink, seeing how it goes. <laughs> Most of the time that's really, really uncomfortable. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's surprisingly brilliant and transcendent, always tons of amazing information. It's just literally kind of like, it is like you're, you know, you're, you're, you're mowing new, you know, you're chopping new kind of pathways through the forest in a way by going to a wedding sober, by doing a sober vacation, by going on a bachelorette sober, like by having a Friday night dinner with a friend Mm -hmm. sober, like putting myself through all those situations again and again and again and again. It's a bit like a yoga practice or a meditation practice. It's kind of like at first it feels really awkward and uncomfortable and like, why would I do this? And I can't see the benefit of this. But over time, it starts to become more and more natural. Yeah. Um, And yeah, yeah, I mean, it, it literally... It's just been a question of just kind of, just not drinking, (laughs) really. But bringing intentionality to that. So bringing conscious awareness to everything that's happening around the not drinking. How do I feel? What thoughts are coming up? What feelings are coming up? Like, why am I so uncomfortable? Like, asking all of Mm. those questions, which is what being sober curious is. I think a lot of people think of sober curious as like, I don't know, sobriety light or something. And I don't see it (laughs) like that at all. It's, that's not the, that was never been my intention with it. It's about like giving yourself permission to actually answer those questions for yourself and get tons of information about your relationship with alcohol so that going forward, you can actually make choices that are right for you. And that can look different for, for many people. Personally, for me, it means no alcohol at all now. I have mm-hmm. but, but not because I've banned it. Because I have discovered that I have no use for it in my life.
0: Because mm-hmm. huh. I, I was recently uh, reading something you wrote about, uh, you know, the occasional few beers. I think your example was down in Austin, Texas or something like that. So obviously that article was three years old. <laughs> that was
3: 2016. Mm. I remember that. Okay, yeah. So even longer. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I remember that. So- well, it, was, it wasn't a sober first, right? I had not been drinking for a while and I went to a music festival and I'm like, well, a music festival, I mean. Yeah,
0: obviously. <laughs>
3: <laughs> obviously, I'm going to drink beer, but then, yeah, I didn't, I, yeah. It, it so you, you, you know, over,
0: over the next year or two or three, you decided that, that not even that was what you wanted.
3: Absolutely. The occasion. Yeah.
2: I've known who you are for a couple years now, and just since we started this podcast, I've been digging into your stuff and your books and your social media stuff, and I kind of get the vibe that spiritual practices are a big part of a way that you stay consciously aware of this stuff, and it kind of cultivates your practice and your curiosity, and helps you pose these questions. What do those spiritual practices look like for you? Like, what do you think complements this whole process for you in regards to spirituality?
3: I love the fact you've asked that. For me, it's very interesting. Like I said, I launched this platform, The Numinous, when I first moved to New York in 2012. And honestly, it was engaging with all of the practices that I was writing about there. And this is everything from yoga, meditation, breath work, sound healing, acupuncture, tarot astrology some on the more woo-woo end some on the more kind of like physical wellness end I suppose but it was engaging with all these practices that really brought to the surface like this is a thing you need to look at this you know and it also threw into very stark contrast like how bad I felt how I felt like all of these practices were helping me get more conscious of myself, my feelings, my awareness, the world around me, like mm. what I wanted to create and who I wanted to be in the world. And then every time I used alcohol, all of that got shut down. I could feel it just shutting down. I could feel myself being separated from this, this becoming that was occurring in my life in this other area. So it was engaging with all of those practices that I just mentioned that really helped me, um, that became tools that I could use to actually build the kind of a life that I wanted to be living. So the things that I still use to this day, I mean, I meditate every day. Um, I, use, I do yoga probably every other day. <laughs> and I just do, do it at home. You know, I use an online service. I don't go to a studio or anything fancy. Those are my two kind of like anchor points, which, yeah, just so incredibly helpful um, for helping me. Because I think a big part of sober curiosity is being able to be in this observer space in your mind So you're actually really consciously aware of the actions you're taking, the reactions that are occurring when things happen in your life, um, the choices that you're making, the words that you're using, the words that you're speaking to yourself. Meditation and yoga are both specifically designed to help kind of cultivate a connection to that kind of higher higher self perspective in a way. And you know what's really interesting? There are many people in my life who have kind of got sober curious with me (laughs) And it's been a stepping stone to them for 12-step recovery programs because what they uncovered through their sober curiosity was like actually this problem feels like a more serious problem that i could really use some help and support with and i think that's awesome and so i've heard a lot of talk about a higher power right (laughs) and i'm like well funny i think my higher power is maybe astrology which many people think of as being so woo-woo and out there it has (laughs) such a kind of like bad reputation but honestly i just use it as a practice to help me tune into the fact that i am part of something so much bigger that i have absolutely no control of and that i can align myself with or i can choose to try to um, control or manipulate and so for me astrology is my higher power you know and it's just like i just do a daily check-in what's happening where's my chart what's going on what transits are happening And it helps me just remember, like I'm part of a bigger unfolding and all my, all I can do is just like keep showing up, you know? (laughs) So yeah, these, these three practices, yoga, meditation, astrology are the things that I use daily.
2: Well, they're obviously working.
3: (laughs) Indeed.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I think I was really drawn to one of the pieces that you wrote. The idea of kind of this being a judgment free and imperfect journey as well and I think that's where a lot of people get really scared and where I got really scared is I didn't drink for about two years as a result of a lot of the questions and answers and and then when I did want to have a glass of wine I felt an immense pressure or guilt that somehow I had undone something or that I had put out there in the world that I you know I'm not drinking right now or I I don't like alcohol or whatever it was and then almost having to justify if I ever stepped back close to it again or if I ever had a glass of wine and just having a really strange reaction from people just, oh, so we're drinking again or like, Mm -hmm. oh, so we're allowed to have wine again. or we. And it's like, I always had a hard time with, you know, if I go out to dinner with a friend, no one ever questions what I order on the menu as far as food, but they really have a hard time with what liquid I'm ordering. And I always had trouble with that but I I think it was a result of answering a lot of those rhetorical questions that would come up internally and that's where I encourage most of my clients when they're starting to explore this is don't just ask the rhetorical questions and leave them open-ended and then go do what you do anyway just answer them you know, if it's like, well, what, what could be so bad about it? Is it really problematic if I don't have a DUI or, you know, what could this hurt or what's two beers? It's like, you haven't answered any of those answer mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm.
3: And sometimes the only way to answer what's the problem. If I have two beers, is have two beers mm-hmm. and see, see if there's a problem. And I it's do, like, well, you cause know. you
1: said it doesn't work for you. So that's the issue, right? It's like it, maybe nothing horrible happens, but I think the, the beautiful thing about the way that you package this is, but what could happen instead without alcohol? And I almost think of that like when you're talking about the becoming, it's like you're blocking the becoming.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> it's such a healthier perspective to look at this from, yeah. I feel like.
3: I feel like it's a really, for anyone who actually is in this to create a sustainable, a long-term shift, whether that means no alcohol or whatever it looks like for you just a better relationship with alcohol I feel like this is a very sustainable approach because you can't unlearn you can't unknow the things that you learn through being sober curious right Mm -hmm. circumstances might change it might be that at a different point in your life you can have a glass of wine and it doesn't impact you in the same negative way you know but yeah i'm i'm definitely really into the non-judgment i'm really into the not shaming people for wherever they're at and just giving people the agency to make decisions that they feel are right for them and also to make mistakes sometimes and that not be the end of the world you know and to not mean that you failed and to not mean that you're weak also really recognizing and this is something that i write about in both books and i'm always eager to speak about alcohol is one of the five most addictive substances on the planet right the odds are stacked against you (laughs) yeah if you've reached a place where you feel that it's something that you're maybe a bit too attached to the odds are stacked against you being able to keep that substance in your life and a lot of the time for people who maybe aren't at the kind of like very problematic end of alcohol the alcohol abuse you know sort of spectrum the mental energy that goes into moderating is sometimes a problem in and of itself even if the alcohol is not causing you the problem like the mental gymnastics around trying to keep this thing in your life the amount of time and energy that that takes up is like you say sam blocking you from really putting that time and energy into the things that fill you up. I did a podcast episode with Bill Shufelt, who's the founder of Athletic Brewing, which is my favorite alcohol-free craft beer. Little plug for Bill. (laughs) I love Athletic Brewing. They're so cool. And he put it really well. He's like, you know, alcohol can create this, like, invisible glass ceiling in your life that you don't even realize is there until you remove it, you know? Um, And it's because, yeah, it's like you're kind of mining for for diamonds in a way you know you're sort of you don't know what you're missing until you've until you've discovered it it's a strange one but yeah
1: that's where I felt like it was very limiting for me like you mentioned like the first bachelorette party that I went to sober if you know for years I had told myself that was not something that was possible or if remotely fun alcohol free and that's so limiting and so sad if that's true. And it was like the best one I've ever been to, you know? And, and I was present the whole time and I woke up feeling great the next morning and like all of those things. And I was able to be totally present and learn about myself that I actually could get up and dance sober and actually could order pizza when they probably needed to calm down and eat something. And like, I got to learn that I wasn't actually as limited Almost like as alcohol had told me I was, or as society had told me, you know, the limits around alcohol. And that's a, a beautiful learning
3: experience. Yeah, it's extremely empowering. I talk about this often, how like, I, I started experimenting with alcohol around the age of 15. And then I took a big break kind of in my later teens um, and kind of came back to it at the end of my college experience in my early 20s um, and then kind of like went into it fairly heavily from then just because it was very much part of the culture of the UK journalism scene that I was coming into in my early 20s, you know. If you've been essentially outsourcing your confidence to alcohol from the age of 15, if you think about how insecure most of us are when we're 15, Mm. We're like, we've suddenly like got this adult body. We've got no idea what to do with it. We've got no idea. Like there's all these kind of ideas, like these societal rules about what we should do with it. Like we should be hooking up with people. We should be dating people. We should be going to parties. We should be looking like this and dressing like this. But it's all very confusing and then of course at that point along comes alcohol just to like ease out all of those kinks and make us feel like we fit in and make us feel like we're not awkward and make us feel like we know what we're doing even though we obviously don't (laughs) (laughs) and so at that point and speaking for myself of course i learned oh alcohol is where i get my confidence alcohol is how i fit in alcohol gives me a role in this group we don't get to disprove we have to disprove ourselves. that if if you see what i mean and i think yeah having my first sober bachelorette was probably one of the biggest challenges but that being said one of the most empowering experiences of my whole sober curious like life because yeah i was the one i was the one they couldn't get off karaoke singing britney spears (laughs) toxic obviously (laughs) Hey, I've done that too. <laughs> but it was so much fun just to realize, oh my god, I can be this fun yeah. party girl and I don't have to be drinking. This is like, oh my god, it's like two lives for the price of one. This is a double win-win, you know. It was amazing.
0: <laughs> it lends itself to just the the ongoing misconception where, you know, you you so often hear people and I have even said this, I am in recovery and I, you know, haven't had a sip in 15 years, but I took it down that path where there was a major rock bottom and major internal, external consequences. So I'm, I'm a little bit on that side of things. But, you know, I've said this where, you know, the first time I took a sip of whatever, it just felt like it filled this hole or this void. And all of a sudden I felt comfortable and I could talk to girls and I could talk to people. And it, Well, you know, we often think that I was maybe born with that or there was something wrong with me. No, I was... F- fucking 14 years old, I was scared to death of everything, <laughs> naturally, just like most people. Yep, so exactly. of course alcohol filled my, that hole in that void. Like, that's what alcohol does, no matter what age you are.
3: Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And especially at that age, which I guess is why we have laws around like, you don't drink until you're 21. <laughs> right. But what happens when you ban something, people just want more yeah. of it, you know? Yeah. So and it, I think it's very difficult to like, I don't know, a lot of time parents will ask me, what should I tell my kids about drinking what should I teach my kids about alcohol I'm like well how do you drink (laughs) because that's what (laughs) you're teaching them you know and it's very difficult in a society where alcohol is so glamorized and so widely kind of like publicized and marketed as what makes you sexy and cool and attractive and one of the gang and then tell people but you can't drink until you're 21 because those are all the things you want to be when you're a kid you know so Mm -hmm. yeah very challenging and I'm Again, I'm not like, I'm not a prohibitionist by any means. I'm like, let's just give people all of the information that they need to be really empowered and know that they're making the right choice for them. That's it.
2: How important in in your own journey have like friends or like partners that have also taken this like sober curious thing seriously, how important have they been in, in your own journey in terms of accountability and motivation and inspiration? You don't have to answer this but like do you have people around you that 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 like hold you accountable and and that you're like yeah let's do this together and how much has that helped this process for you or has this been a journey that you've just kind of done alone
3: Well you know it's very like I said like most people when I first started sharing that I was having these issues or was rethinking drinking most people's response was but you don't have a problem come mm-hmm. off it yeah. what You can have one. So no. Oh, yeah. yeah. You can have one. Oh really good one just tonight. Oh, God, I haven't seen you for ages. Have a drink. But you're really fun when you drink. It it has been very self-directed. What I will say is, like I said, it all started kind of kicking off for me mentally 2011. I moved to New York 2012. That's when I started this project, The Numinous. And so I had this kind of natural breaking point from my whole old social life. Mm -hmm. All the people I had done my kind of heavy fun drinking with in London I was not hanging out with these people regularly anymore and I was meeting a whole lot of new people who were into yoga and green juice and sound baths (laughs) and alcohol just wasn't at those social gatherings right so I wasn't necessarily surrounded by people saying hey we need to quit drinking I was surrounded by people who just weren't drinking and it was like a revelation that you could kind of have a social life and have loads of connections and be part of something without alcohol really being major player
0: welcome to america right Right. i mean there was a difference it's interesting
3: (laughs) alcohol both the uk and america have big binge drinking culture however one big difference i did notice when i started when i go out for dinner in new york number one no one ordered a bottle of wine ever ordering a bottle of wine at dinner was like oh my god we're going wild tonight Mm -hmm. (laughs) people might have a glass or like one cocktail In the UK, if you didn't order a bottle of wine, it'd be like, don't be so boring. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh. So that was an immediate kind of, oh, there's a slight difference here. And then the other thing, like if I didn't order an alcoholic drink at all, no one would bat an eyelid. Like no one would kind of make me feel bad about it. Um, So that felt very different. I guess the major thing in terms of relationships was my husband who I had always had done loads of fun drinking with like we were each other's favorite drinking buddies like we always had a really fun time <laughs> but um yeah he was just really respectful of me wanting to take a break even though at first he was kind of a little bit sad about it or you know perhaps I think we both felt a bit sad about those times like moving on from those fun times you know and I think that's very natural as well to feel some kind of grief around like oh that part of myself maybe is not coming with me for the rest of the journey you know um I think it's very natural and I don't think we give ourselves enough permission to kind of like have compassion and even to mourn those the fun parts because of course there were fun times You know, it wasn't all bad. No. Of course it was fun. Yeah, it's very natural to feel sad about not experiencing that anymore. But over time, the more he and I would go out on date nights and I wouldn't be drinking and then he'd keep drinking. And then slowly he'd be like just having one drink. And then he wouldn't have any drinks. (laughs) To the point where he now no longer, he he doesn't drink at all. So he's kind of come with me on the journey, but not through me pressuring him as to like, you've Mm -hmm. got to stop drinking, more just through... I don't know, he just kind of like matched my vibe, I suppose. Pretty and cool. we discovered that actually we've always we've got a, a really beautiful relationship. I'm so, so grateful that I married my best friend. But um, I don't know, it's just been really, I've been so over, over the moon, I suppose, that actually we get on even better without hmm. the alcohol. And we feel our relationship feels even closer now because, yeah, we're just more present with each other, you know? Yes. There's a yes. deeper connection there too, right?
1: I mean, I think Definitely. Even watching your partner be able to take that brave step of I mean, it's not fun to be a pioneer in anything. So it's very, uh, I found it to be very unpopular (laughs) and unsexy to be the one to be like, I think I'm going to remove alcohol and no longer have cocktails when we go out. And like, yeah, and similarly, my whole family's in the UK. And so very much grew up with that culture of like, we can have one, take a drink, you know, something, let me put something in your hand. You sure you don't just want like a wee wine, like, you know, Mm. something, can I give you Uh. something?
0: You must feel uncomfortable.
1: It pains the host that they can't give me a drink. Mm. And, Mm. you know, none of that is, is fun. But I think what you said early on in this is so important of just trusting that inner dissonance and trusting that this may not make sense to anyone else, but I know for sure it's making sense to me because I feel more congruent. I feel better physically. I feel better mentally and just being able to trust yourself in that. And I think I had a similar experience where my partner probably hasn't, I don't think at least as an outsider looking in changed any of his drinking patterns, but has changed the, the questioning, the intention, the, the awareness of what's happening when he's drinking and has wholeheartedly been like, whatever works for you. Like it's not about, I don't care what you put in your body when we go out to dinner. Like Mm. why would that matter? And have found very much the same things where there is that connection. There is way more intentional conversation about it because the word that you used outsourcing, Mm. that's where a lot of my questioning has happened is just what, what all am I outsourcing? Cause it's not just confidence for me. It's also making things fun that aren't fun to me. Um, Sorry, everyone listening that I've ever done this with, but tailgating is not fun. (laughs)
3: <laughs> i've never tailgated but it's, I don't it's think sitting I would in a parking fun.
1: lot for seven hours it's not fun <laughs> right. guys it's not fun it's well, only fun I when you like drink doing that
2: when i was drinking
1: <laughs> but the, like those were the types of things Hold where it just here. felt like I, I was totally outsourcing or pretending or masking and just kind of being like it'll be fine because we'll be drinking and it helped me tolerate things. But I think sometimes the narrative was, it will be fun because we'll be drinking. But mm. what I meant was, I can put up with it because we'll be drinking. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's and that was sad movie. because there were so many places in my life where I wasn't putting up with things. I was loving things. I was loving yoga. I was loving going to the beach. I was loving doing these reading by myself, right? And none of that sexy or fun, but it felt so much more congruent. And just having people around you almost admire that pioneership, even though it's a really lonely process when you're the one doing it.
3: Which is why I do, it's one of the things I, I do love about social media, is that it's made it so much easier to find people who are going to reflect back to you that you're okay for making yeah. these other choices. Yeah. There are lots of things I don't like about social media, but I think that's the one thing that... Um, I'm on board with mm-hmm. but yeah you make such a good point and it sounds to me like maybe you're a bit of an introvert <laughs> I and um, <laughs> I everything you shared resonates with me too I think also we live in a world that's very much geared towards extro, extroverts yeah. I just recently watched Susan Cain's TED talk um, it's from a few years ago she wrote the book quiet which is about the power of introverts mm-hmm. and she talked about how even in schools now rather than having kids sit in rows they have people sit in groups around tables and like pretty mm-hmm. much every project is a group project. Like even writing projects are like group projects. And she's so like, please stop this because it's not everybody nightmare. is a group person. Some people mm-hmm. work way better mm-hmm. and are much more comfortable doing stuff on their own. And that doesn't mean that they're dysfunctional or there's anything <laughs> strange or odd or off with them. They're just more introverted and they need alone time to recharge and fill up. And that's what makes them feel good. And so I'm really kind of like, yeah introverts because yes alcohol enables a lot of more introverted people to play the extroverted role and to again fit in and what do we all want we all want to fit in introverts need to fit in too right that's a human basic human need to feel accepted to feel like I am I have a place here I belong I'm needed right alcohol is the go-to to to help us all be more extroverted it's cool though because when you remove it just for that
1: night, you get to learn if that's something you actually like doing or not, and then you get to make a decision about whether you ever want to do that thing again or not. Like, Mm -hmm. if I don't enjoy tailgating without alcohol, then the truth is I don't enjoy tailgating. Right.
3: And so I don't have to go tailgating (laughs) anymore. (laughs) Exactly. But you might, if you were tailgating on a beach, and you could go off for half an hour and, like, walk on the surf. By myself. By yourself, take a little kind of dip out, and then come back, see what the group is doing, and, you know yeah
0: take your take your own car out (laughs) on the beach and tailgate (laughs) by yourself basically
3: (laughs) that sounds
1: amazing but the the point is like I would never have known that if I'd kept drinking through it right like I would just keep going and drinking and and it would be fine but there's no depth because I never get to discover that that activity is not fun for me it's just tolerable without with alcohol and that was the opportunity removing it gave to me was just learning about myself and what I really enjoy and what things I just tolerate. And there are still times where I just go tolerate something with a glass mm-hmm. of wine, but I know that that's what I'm doing. And I know
3: mm-hmm. I'm wanting to leave soon. <laughs> and yeah, and, yeah. That, and that's fine. I think that's absolutely fine because sometimes we do have a sense of duty and sometimes yeah. there are things we're obligated to do. And sometimes maybe I'll co- a glass of wine or even just having something to hold Mm -hmm. And a sip or two is going to be something you can use in that situation. But if you know that's what you're doing, then you're not gaslighting yourself. And, yeah, I think you're good. I
2: I think, you know, the old adage, the answer is in the question. I mean, I I think that's kind of like the whole bit of wisdom that's behind all this. And sober curious and just being able to ask yourself the right questions To kind of extract the truth of what you're really doing and what your relationship to alcohol really looks like
3: and it's Um, it is very much like yeah you have to actually be walking the path it is i mean i've got two books great read the books but you're only really going to be able to answer the questions by actually living it it, you know Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: when people are like what do you do if you are going out to dinner and you know they're all going to be drinking i'm like just try it i don't know what to tell you just try it exactly I mean, I, d- I can give you a script, but the chances are if I give you that, it's not authentic to you. You're probably not going to use it. And the whole point is that you just go try it. <laughs> and you might fail. Like, you might get there and be like, ah, oh, I can't do it, and order Gen martini, like whatever. But just go try it, and then every time you try it, you learn things, and you just collect data about what works and what
3: doesn't. <laughs> mm-hmm, exactly.
0: Let's transition just a little here. I would love to talk about uh, labels and we kind of touched on this in the beginning where we were discussing just the external perspective you know looking at someone who's making some changes curious about changes and you know like you said there's just such a vast spectrum of of drinking or relationships with alcohol i would love to talk about the word alcoholic you know i got to a place where i needed to confront that and, and and admit and accept that i had a uh, a relationship with alcohol that, you know, was going nowhere. In fact, it was just going straight down. But then there's this leading up to that point that I fought it for so long. I fought the fact that I was an alcoholic or or some, you know, definition that I had come up with of what an alcoholic was. You know, it was always within reach, but I was never there. So I just kept kind of pushing it out, pushing it out until finally it was like, all right, man, you're <laughs> right. You are one. You are. You finally are. Uh, even though I had been. So anyway, the point is, you know, alcoholic can take so many different meanings. And I, wo- I wonder if the label and the kind of subjective definition of that is is perhaps harming uh, people's efforts in making changes.
3: Well, I think as far as words go, it's probably one of the most stigmatized words out there. Um, For so long, I think we've just had such negative associations with the word alcoholic. Immediately, for a lot of people, it brings up a vision of, you know, somebody passed out in the gutter, covered in their own vomit. I mean, that's no. Mm -hmm. And if you haven't experienced that yourself, then it's very hard to kind of want to give yourself that label. On the other hand, what you said about like actually admitting and owning up to, you know what, that's me. That can be extremely liberating for somebody who's yeah. been clinging on to the alternative identity, which is just like out of control, drunk, <laughs> right? right. <laughs> um, which is by my, by is is gonna be the thing that ends finds you in the gutter, you know? Um, yeah. So yeah, I don't know. I think that a big part of this whole sober curious movement has been about destigmatizing conversations around addiction and actually saying alcohol addiction can look many different ways, like we've been talking about, like an alcohol problem can look very different to different people. And I actually see more people who are not necessarily programmed sober using the word alcoholic now. And I, I think it will take a long, longer period of time, but I do actually think that that word is beginning to be less triggering for people mm. and maybe less of a, less of a barrier right. to, to mm. people finding help particularly, you know, in the 12 step programs, just because we're starting to be more open and recognizing that alcohol, that addiction rather is something that impacts all of our lives, you know? So, yeah, I mean, on the other hand as well, I do, I remember reading a statistic, um, there was something like, you know, only 10% of people who perceive alcohol as being a problem for them will ever go to a rehab or seek recovery which meant that nine out of 10 people who are like having these sober curious questions are not going to go there. And I think that's part of, to, partly to do with the stigmatization also. So I think sure. allowing people or encouraging people to kind of self-identify with their drinking in a whatever way makes them feel comfortable. Like I just call myself a non-drinker. I now when i and I often say when I, you know I talk about being a, a normal social drinker, i'll put that in air quotes because i 'm like I was a problem drinker, my problem drinking just didn't look like what I thought problem drinking was, you know mm-hmm. I still wouldn't use the term alcoholic for myself because it is so closely associated with twelve step recovery, and i'm not mm. part of a participant in that program, and I also think that's a very that is a specific path that has a very kind of um a very specific sort of legacy and practice and fellowship. And I don't want to like take, steal from that in a way, you know? So, Mm -hmm. so yeah, label labels are tricky for sure. Yeah. And can be a barrier and can also be an identity and very helpful. It really depends on the person I think.
0: I like that. Great answer. Yeah. And, and I mean, I guess it's almost like a two part, strategy and your mission and our mission where we're just trying to normalize this curiosity, but there also has to be some sort of universal understanding of what what it means to to either be an alcoholic or to have an issue or to not even have an issue. Just to I drink. What does that mean? What does that look like? And and you know, it is very individual, it is very personalized, but I don't think the public thinks that way Mm -hmm. or at least majority wise that's why i love the
2: definition of addiction that that i like to use which is continued use despite negative consequences because it's that broad everybody can identify with that on some level um with some behavior Mm. i mean even if it's not you're not using anything it's any continued behavior even that has that negative has negative consequences.
0: consequences and you continue.
2: Well, I think yeah.
1: that's what's important. It's it's not a this or that. It's not abuse or dependence anymore, right? It's, it's substance use on a spectrum and I typically at least in front of the clients that I see, I'm, I'm only looking at symptoms they're reporting. I'm not going and finding them and naming them for them. It's come to me with what questions do you have about your use and know that that doesn't mean that you're committing to lifelong sobriety and it doesn't really mean anything other than where we go and what journey you choose and the things you start to question and the practices you put in place because if it's anything other than that and I put myself in that. I'm just scared to fail, or I'm scared about what guilt might come up if I do choose to drink again like I did after two years, where it then had a place in my life that it hadn't for two years and it made sense again and it wasn't I wasn't having negative consequences anymore. And just wanting people to have that space to go somewhere between a treatment program that's inpatient and an AA meeting or or just their best friend's couch. It's like just just a place to ask questions, discover, be guided in what questions are important to ask, essentially like what are you outsourcing to alcohol. Right, I love mm-hmm. that word that you that you brought up because it gives us a place to start looking and then like you said, what we're really looking for is to give people agency and have real information in their hands to do that
3: with. It does it does require a level of self-honesty and a level of integrity. And I think that's a really important thing to talk about as well. Like, we all know when we're lying to ourselves as much as we would like to pretend we don't sometimes. (laughs) That's one thing I do appreciate, I suppose, about the the first step, you know, admitting I'm powerless. Like, that is incredibly powerful because you're basically saying, no more lying to myself about this, you know? And I do think that's an important, humbling step. So I always, you know, if you're gonna get sober curious, do yourself the decency of being honest with yourself. Yeah. You know? Don't waste your time. Yeah, don't waste your time.
0: That concept has always been a little foreign for me. I've just lived a life where uh, I'm not very in tune, um, and I'm not very internally reliable, <laughs> I guess would be the way to say it. You know, wake up one morning, and I'm going to do this, and then, you know, two hours later, is I'm not doing that. And I've lived my my life a, a for a while, um, a lot less now, but for a long time, that's how I, that's what I grappled with. And I do think that is a common theme. I don't think, you know, everybody out there is just motivated and, and ready to roll and, and looking internal. And, and you know, I, l- I look at your path and I, and I love it because it's, you were seeking connection, you know, with yourself and others and authentic connection. And that's admirable and fantastic, but how do we get other people to do that? <laughs> how do we get other people to think that way? Mm-hmm. And I do think, and, I, and I, I may have mentioned this to you earlier, but maybe that's the way in to get this conversation going.
1: We just, we just invite, right? It's what you did, yeah. Ruby. You just invited people. You don't yeah. make them do anything.
3: I think you just make it okay for people to be where they're at. And this is why, I mean, I do, I consistently talk about meditation. And I know that that message is so out there in the world. So again, it can almost be a bit of a like, oh, no, I'm not doing that. Because it's <laughs> so ubiquitous. And so many people have tried meditation like me. I was, I, very interestingly, I got sober curious around exactly the time, same time I did my first yoga retreat, first meditation mm. sessions. Mm. But this practice, I almost want it to have another word. I don't even like mindfulness either because both mm-hmm. just sound kind of a bit like... I don't know, wishy washy. (laughs) But if there was another word to describe meditation, which is just the simply the practice of knowing what you think, of just Mm -hmm. being aware of what you're thinking, like that in and of itself is such an important and powerful tool for people. Yeah, and we live in this world of just distractions, and everyone being an expert, wanting to tell us what to think, wanting to tell us how to feel, wanting to tell us like how we should be feeling about a situation. So again, this is one of the reasons I'm not a big fan of social media. I think that, you know, being really conscious about what you consume in terms of media, social media, news, even the people that you're spending time with, so that you can really start to develop like a good solid connection to like, what am I actually thinking? What do I actually really believe? What do I actually really think? What am I really feeling? Which is great if you, you know, having a coach or a therapist to help you through this process and be that mirror for you, it can be super, super valuable, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I feel really lucky that the community I met when I moved to New York were people who were all, they were all therapists and coaches. This was like the, the, the scene that I found myself part of. So I was around people who were having very conscious conversations. And who were really kind of like doing their quote unquote work, like who were really, you know, who were really invested in calling themselves out on their own bullshit and looking at their own conditioning and unraveling it and, you know, getting deep with that stuff. So finding community of other people who are willing to go there to some of the darker, deeper places, (laughs) I think can be really helpful. And actually the second, the Sober Curious reset, it kind of takes you through 100 days of not drinking. And then each day has a little exercise, like it's a journaling exercise or a kind of a thought experiment or a conversation starter that are designed to start you to just get you more aware of like, what am I actually thinking right now? You know,
1: I love that. I think it's such an approachable tool. Just try this right when people have no idea where to start.
3: Yeah. Have you ever looked at it like this? Yeah. What do you really think about this?
2: You know, we usually like to leave our listeners at the end of each episode with kind of like three bits of wisdom from our guests. And like, if you could tag three specific things that you think are the most important Kickstarters to become sober curious, what would those be?
3: Okay. Number one, I would say, write down all of the things that you would like to make space for in your life. Write down all the things that you never feel like you have time for, energy for, that you can't do because you're not confident enough. What are all the things you would like to to attract in your life or to experience? And just put them down on a piece of paper. And maybe use that as kind of like a motivation for like what you want to bring into your life. A lot of the time when we're thinking about quitting drinking, I mean quitting says it all. Like you're cutting something out, you're losing something, you're letting go of something. And I think having a really clear kind of outline of like... This is what I want to make space for in my life can be a really um, powerful kind of incentivizer. So that would be one of them. I do think having someone you can talk honestly to about what you're going through and what's coming up for you, whether that's a friend or a coach or a therapist, even if it's just one other person that you can really kind of talk it out with, and it can be a friend. I think peer to peer support is one of, again one of the beautiful things about the twelve step programs, you know. You're able to talk really honestly with people who are experiencing the same stuff. So yeah, if there's not a friend in your life or a family member, then maybe it is a coach or maybe it is a therapist, but somebody that you can kind of like vocalize and get the stuff out of your head and kind of into reality is also really important. And then the third one is something we haven't really discussed, but I mean, I mentioned I love alcohol-free beer. And like, honestly, there's this whole movement now of like Mm -hmm. alcohol-free beverages, which to me has been such a useful, practical tool, especially in those early days of going to events or going to a barbecue or a dinner party or something. And honestly, just not knowing what I was going to drink and yeah. Sam being afraid of being in that situation where people are like, can I get you something? Oh yeah, I put, some, I put some of these athletic brews in the fridge. I'll take one of those, please. Yeah, It just can be such a good, like, uh, a bit of a placebo, but equally just a really good kind of like, shutting that conversation down of like, what are you drinking? I'm drinking this. (laughs) So on a practical (laughs) level, experimenting, there's so much great stuff out there. Like even just in the past couple of years, that whole category is just like ballooned. It's amazing. So um, that can be a fun, sort of like fun. And again, feel like you're actually gaining something rather than having to like abstain and just be this monk who only drinks water, you know? (laughs) Or drink juice like at the kids table. Yeah, exactly.
2: (laughs) Capri Suns. Cold breath.
3: I love that. So those would be my three things. Like, get really clear on what you want to make space for in your life. Find somebody to be your kind of, like, running buddy, and then get into some of the AF, alcohol-free options that are out there.
1: Love it.
0: Love it. That's awesome. Fantastic. (laughs) Ruby, thank you so much. Thank you. That was just fantastic. Uh, Everything about that conversation just falls right in line with what, what we're about and we really appreciate you agreeing to participate so thank you well thanks
3: for having me on.
2: i just want to thank you on a personal note for for using your experience to kind of spark this this movement and your vulnerability and and your willingness to share this with everybody so thanks for being here this has been awesome
3: thanks again it's been great
0: The information and opinions shared on this podcast are solely those of the hosts and guests and are not a substitute for medical advice. If you feel like you may need professional help, here are some resources. For the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration hotline, call 1-800-662-4357 or visit smsa.gov. For listeners in the Charlotte, North Carolina community, visit DilworthCenter.org or call 704-372-6969 or visit the Blanchard or call 704-288-1097